Hello, Adam Greenfield here, host of the Great Communicators podcast series. And what you're about to hear is the full, unedited interview with one of the guests we spoke with. If you haven't listened to the fully produced episode yet, I definitely encourage you to do so before listening to this one. They're shorter in length and much more refined. You can find them all at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. The idea behind these longer, unedited conversations is to give you an opportunity to hear the entire talk, orts and all. This is not only a fun way to hear the full flow of the conversation, but it also emphasizes the importance of the points made in the shorter, produced episodes, which, again, can be found at gradx.mit.edu forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the conversation. Do you want to um, tell me your name and talk a little bit about the work you do here at MIT? My name is Tony Eng, and I teach engineers how to communicate here. I graduated with a degree in computer science, and when I finished, I was asked to think about creating a communication class. And I thought, well, you know, that's not really my background. But I was told, well, you take a semester to think about it and then come back and let us know. So I went around the institute and I did my due diligence. I tried to figure out what was being done here at MIT. I spoke to alumni who are out in industry and I said, what could be done here? I spoke to recruiters and so forth. And everyone said, we need to teach the students to communicate better. I proposed a class that was, in the beginning, both written and oral communication, but now it's focused entirely on oral communication. It became made a requirement, and so here I am. I'm still running this course for undergrads in the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science. Great. Um, you said oral communication is almost a complete focus. Mm-hmm. Um, do you work with grad students as well, or is it... Uh... The grad students don't typically take this class. They can if they wanted to, but I think, I don't know, it just has the stigma of being an undergrad class, so they don't typically take it. I have had some grad students take the course because when they did their oral exams, the committee said, we'll pass you on condition that you take a presentation class. I've run other courses and seminars that are either for grad students or grad students have come and participated in those. Um, you said you went around, I kind of want to unpack that, you said you went mm-hmm. around and looked at uh, uh, all these different sources to get kind of an indication on, on how to lead, and you first started with writing and oral. Um, how did it change to completely oral? I found that I was trying to do too much in too little time. It's a six-unit class, so it's like a half class here at MIT. And it was too much to do in a semester to try to get them to learn how to communicate orally and in a written form. I thought rather than doing too poorly, we should focus on oral communication. And I didn't think, I thought of the two, more was being done here in in terms of written work and less was being done in the oral form. So I shifted entirely to the oral. How much of your class... And do you teach that you feel is specifically geared towards electrical engineers versus what anybody could learn? To be fair, most of the ideas and skills can be applied to anyone with a technical background. I just happen to be in this department and an alum of this department. So 
to take the course, you really need to have had some. Uh, you had to have some exposure to, say, a technical project or to some of the technical ideas because they provide the content for which you give your talk. So it's not just oral communication, but it's a lot of it is technical oral communication. <clears throat> How do you take the stuff that you're working on and presenting it to others of different backgrounds so that they can understand what you're doing? What are some of the things you notice <clears throat> that are pretty... Uh, standard with the students who are coming into the class, maybe um, assumptions that they have that you kind of have to work with and massage? <laughs> to be honest, a lot of the students don't want to take the class. And I think when I was an undergrad, I probably would have not wanted to take the class either because <clears throat> it's scary to be in front of a group of people and sort of expose yourself. I think the general sentiment is, you know, I've been talking since I've been age two. Why should I take a class on how to talk? I came to MIT to take technical courses, and I want to learn about the latest advances in this field. Why do I have to spend time doing this non-technical class? And to be fair, I think a fraction of them actually speak pretty well. But that's not the most. The majority of them aren't able to clearly articulate and communicate what it is they're working on, what they want to work on, or just like technical ideas in the field that they're working on. Their approach to the class then is, well, I have to take this class, so why don't I just attend? And I think for those who actually give it a chance, and for those who try to put in some work, they'll get something out of it. Because the things that we present, I think a lot of the students come back afterwards. It's one of those things where, like, in, in the semester, you're taking it, you're not, but you don't really appreciate it until you kind of go out into industry or academia, see what some of these presentations are like, and then try to remember back to the class, and here are some things that we taught, and they try to apply it. And then we often get these emails back that say, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I took your class, and I had to give a talk, or I had to give a pitch, and I won the competition or whatever because I tried this or that. And so I think it's useful stuff that they don't appreciate until later on in their careers. <clears throat> How many students, roughly, would you say you've worked with? It up until this year or last year, it was a requirement for graduation in my department, which is the largest department at MIT. <clears throat> so typically, the fall semester, we had 250 students. The spring, we had about 200 at its peak. And nowadays, it's one of two classes you can take to graduate. The other one is more focused on research, and you have to apply to get in, so only a limited pool get in. So I guess the numbers are probably around, I'd say, 150 to 200 per semester. Wow, and how long have you been teaching it? I created the class, and that was about <clears throat> 10, 12 years ago. Wow. Mm -hmm. You know, I th it just strikes me that it's kind of a unique position to be teaching communications to engineers at, like, one of the top schools in the country and, yeah. like, for engineering. And um, you, I, I, I'm curious about what you've noticed about, since you started the class, what you've noticed what has become important in what you think about communications in this field? And if that's changed at all over the course of the, the class? So the question is, what have I noticed over the years in terms of like the students' abilities when they come in or their outlook on communication or just the way that we teach it? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about how it's such, I mean, teaching, 
communications to engineers at MIT must come with this kind of like hefty, uh, like the communications teaching I'm doing is kind of really important because it's setting a, a standard in some way for what kind of work is done in this field around communications. And I'm wondering in, in that particular role where you're kind of setting trends uh, in regards to that kind of an educational practice, like um, have you noticed it change? or the needs of the field change in any way? I think the needs of the field, for me, haven't been changing as quickly as the course itself. And every semester we try to do something new, or tries to do something different. In part, it makes teaching of it a bit more interesting, but I think we also try to find ways to improve things. And one of the ways I approach the class is, okay, you have to give a talk, Here's a bare bones way to give it, and you can all do that. And the real question is, how do you make it better? You can just give that talk, and it'll pass. But if you're going to give a talk anyway, <clears throat> you might want to think about very easy ways to make it more memorable or to get more of the audience involved and engaged. And with a minimal amount of effort, you might get a big output or a big positive response to that. So why not do that? We try to incorporate different elements, like we have a game called, um, well, it's, it's a version of Taboo, and we, we play it in this course, and the idea is that the top word is a technical term from the field, and all the words below are technical terms that you cannot use to describe the term above. And the idea is if you're explaining, trying to explain this to someone with a non-technical background, you can't use technical jargon. <clears throat> so how might you explain it? So we give them some ideas for, well, why don't you first describe what it is? Or describe an application. Where would you see it? So capacitive touch sensing might be something like on your mouse pad or your cell phone, right? So you don't have to name it. You could say this, is, this technology is used here. So relate, try to relate to the, to the world that your audience understands without using jargon. That's another element that we try to bring into play. Recently, I've taken ideas from improv, <clears throat> and we use that in the course. So there's a, there's a one, one session on improv, and the idea being is that in many ways, you, you know the points you want to make, and the actual words that you use, that's all improvised on the spot, or that's the philosophy that I, I try, to, try to convey. We don't... We... we we found that it's not really great if, if students just sit there and memorize a whole talk. It doesn't come across as a communication. It's like a recital. And that's usually not as engaging to listen to. And you just can't scale that way. If you have to give a, a, a five-minute talk, okay, maybe you can memorize it. Or, or a one-minute pitch, okay, fine. But if you have to give a 15-minute conference talk frequently, or if you have to give an hour lecture, you don't have time to sit there and memorize every single point and how you're going to say it and where you're going to stand in the room and what gesture you're going to make. So just understanding the key points and then you improvise the rest. Yeah, and you got to know the room. you got to be able to read the crowd, right? And like Those, those are skills that come from practice mm -hmm. more than they come from like an, like an algorithm of communication. It's, it's more like you're up there and you're like, I just said something didn't land. I have to like exactly. switch tactics. <laughs> right, you're... you're you got to decide on the fly what we're going to do. <clears throat> I'm wondering. Um, go yeah. Um, sometimes when you, when you have your hand here, it just kind of deadens the. Oh, okay, sure. So I'm sorry. I didn't want to. Yeah, yeah, no, no, totally. Thank you for thank just you for, for sound. Purposes. Okay. <laughs> okay. 
Because I noticed it would go, the levels would go up and down and really up. Yeah. So. No, thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, no. Communication. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I had another question. I, I kind of wanted to hear about how, you know, you got chosen to, to, to lead this course and to kind of do this work here. How did that come to be? Like, what's your story? How, um, just backing up, like, mm -hmm. how did that become something that people recognized in you was a skill? Uh, I sometimes make a joke of it and I say that, well, no one else really wanted to do it because I think there's a, a good chance of failure. And so why would someone put themselves in the shoes and fail? And since I was kind of a nobody, I had nothing to lose, so they asked me. Uh, my background is I, I went to MIT for undergrad in computer science and did my master's here and stayed for a PhD. And along the way, I had become involved with one of the courses here, the, the first year computer science class. And I taught that for several years in a row. And again, my philosophy was to you, if you do something, you might as well do it as best as you can. So in all the different iterations, I found different ways to improve it. And eventually, I was made a recitation instructor, which is typically a post held by professors. And as a grad student, then I was teaching these things. And I noticed that attendance would drop. And I thought, well, what could I do so that students would come to class instead of requiring attendance? So I, I thought a lot about how I would make the sections and the material relevant, and how students would... I think if, if they felt they were learning, that it was time well spent. So folks would come to section, and people from other sections would come to my section, and I got good reviews from that. The professor who ran that class, who had worked with for many years, was on my thesis committee. <clears throat> and when you do your defense, you have to give a talk. So I think that's probably when he was exposed to the presentation that I gave. And so when I graduated, he asked me, what, what, what are your plans? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm maybe teaching, maybe not, maybe industry. And he said, well, we have this new requirement, and we'd like someone to think about how to teach it. And so he asked that I look into that. And that's how it came to be. So I don't have a background <laughs> in writing or public speaking or communication. And I thought it was odd that he would ask me to do this, because I, like every other computer science major thought I would go off to Silicon Valley and make a lot of money there. <laughs> and, but it was different, and I liked different. And I liked the challenge, and I thought, well, I could also learn how to present better on my own. What I did was, I did take a couple of public speaking classes, but I found them to be wanting. I, I wasn't too satisfied with them. And I didn't find them concrete or interesting enough. And they weren't, they weren't things I wanted to teach. <clears throat> so I decided that I would look into different disciplines and see how different disciplines handle communication and maybe bring some nuggets or ideas into the course. Examples. I went off and did improv for a couple of years. And there are a lot of ideas from improv that I pull into the class. I went to Paris to study mime for two weeks. And fascinating, there's, there's a lot of communication that goes on with, um, with mime work that's nonverbal. And so I take some ideas from that and I use it in the course. <clears throat> I took an American Sign Language class for a semester just to understand what you could do with your hands. What were some of the, what's some of the vocabulary or some of the motions that you could make? <clears throat> I went off and did Bhangra, which is Indian dance. But the, the moves there are very, are very big. And I was not used to big and having hands outside of my 
cl- closed. I, I was very comfortable with hands and arms very close to my body and not so away from the body. So that taught me that how to communicate that way and to be okay with that way. And so various things like that. I've, I've done acting and voice work and singing. So to me, it was like doing research. I was going off and going through these experiences, and I, I knew what I was looking for, and so I had to discover them through the experience, and I would bring them into the course and try to incorporate them some way. Yeah, I relate to that quite a bit because I, 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 I taught art, uh, high school art, for like five years, but uh-huh. getting that uh, position had a lot to do with similar things, like people recognize talent that I, what, I don't really know if I knew about it, but I think in the act of teaching, that's really interesting if you start to, what? Oh, in the act of teaching, you moved something, and I was like, I thought you were motioning to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, in the act of teaching, I think what's interesting is you start to more consciously unpack the things that you're being recognized for uh, that you probably weren't aware of. They mm-hmm. might have just naturally occurred, or they were a culmination of things that you didn't think were important, but you're like, I have to backwards design this because I'm going to break mm-hmm. down the parts for my students, right, that mm-hmm. they need to take away from that. Like, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, teaching can be even more rewarding for your own educational process in that yeah, way. Totally. <laughs> I was watching, in, in my class, the students have to give a one-minute pitch, and that's in video form. I, was, I had to watch a bunch of them, and I was watching one student in particular, and I noticed that her gesturing was very, what I call, mimey. And... I was trying to figure out what would I, what would I tell the student if I were working with her, to try to improve her gesturing. So I added to my list of things to do, and in spare moments I would think about that. And I came up with some ideas for what to do. I sent her an email last week, and I said, "Hey, I, this is kind of weird, but if you want, would you like to work with me, like outside of class, and it won't have any bearing on your grade whatsoever if you yet say yes or no." But I have some ideas for some, a series of exercises you could do, and I would want each of them recorded. And at the end of the day, if it works out well, I might ask you permission to use them in class. But she hasn't responded to my <laughs> disappointment. But I don't know. I, I, I enjoy the whole idea of observing. And in my mind, there's something wrong. What's, what's wrong? How, what are some practical exercises or games we can play? to elicit something that seems more effective. And I think that's the fun part about teaching. Yeah, I think, I think when you see a student, it's so interesting because I, I always used to tell my students the only reason I'm, I'm giving you a hard time or I'm pushing you in this way is because I see potential there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not because I think you're doing something that there's no hope for, because if there was no hope, why would I even be talking to you about it? Um, mm-hmm. And it, I always see it. It's like the cave, the Plato's cave paintings or the, the shadows on the wall. Okay. Like when, you know, the allegory of the cave where, where Plato, uh, he talks about the people and they can only see the shadows on the wall from a light that's behind them casting a shadow against other people who are walking by, but they look like giant monsters okay. in the shadows and they're too afraid to look back. But in reality, when they, they're not that intimidating once you turn around. Um, and I think 
that when we have this like ignorance mm -hmm. around a topic and, and that's kind of what our role as teachers are is right like we see there's an ignorance there and we're trying to help them shine a light on it and a lot of times in the beginning of ignorance there can be fear and denial mm -hmm. that anything's wrong um anyway that's totally off topic but um <laughs> uh no, I actually, I, I want to talk to you more. Um, I probably want to do an, a second interview uh, just because I think once we get the ball rolling, you'll have a lot of insight around some of the stumbling blocks for our communications course. Okay. <laughs> like, I definitely want to take some cues from you, somebody who's been actually teaching one here. So okay. um, let me talk to you a little bit about, uh, I think I want to skip to public speaking. Um, okay. Why do you think it's important to know how to publicly speak in this field or your field or in STEM or whatever? Until the world becomes totally automated and you take the human out of the picture, there's always going to be a need to communicate with other humans. <clears throat> Whether that be in the form of movies and entertainment or just something as mundane as taking your research and presenting it to others. So, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a trite answer, but I, I can't imagine a world where you don't communicate with anybody. And you might think that you don't. You might be in your own world and you aren't communicating with anybody, but even like talking to your spouse, your kids, or your roommate, there's communication going on. So that's the general area. But in terms of someone who's an engineer or with a technical background, you know, frequently you need to get your work out there whether it's for funding, or you're writing papers, or you just are in a, a, a company working with others and you have ideas for how to, approach this, how to approach this problem or solve the problem or an algorithm that you have to explain, there's always communication going on. And you could either do it clearly, mm -hmm. or you could muddle through it and there's a lot of miscommunication, just wasted time and effort. So, I... I think it's an easy question because as long as there are humans around, you still need to public speak and communicate. I'm very yeah. interested. Um, watch a lot of TED Talks, listen to a lot of podcasts, um, and, and, and I'm always fascinated with this idea that even though there's a lot of unpredictable factors, you were talking earlier about how like one audience, you have two minutes to present something, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, Okay. I'm really interested in what the through lines are about how to construct a, a logic for solving that problem that is communication specific, but exists in each one of those things. Like, what's the commonality? The way that I look at it, or I found that it's best to think of it as a tree. And at the root of the tree is the core message you want to make. And as you go down the layers of the tree, the tree expands. But it's, it's like more supporting points and more supporting points for the supporting point and more supporting points for that. Where you decide to place your talk or what level the tree you use depends upon time. So if I have gobs of time, like a whole semester's worth, then I will visit all the leaves of the tree, all the things at the bottom, and cover as many of the topics as I can. If I only have one minute to talk about the class, then I will only talk about the root. That's the main idea that everything else is, falls out of. And so that's the only point I'll make. 
And so fundamentally, even though there are different time constraints, I always come back to this mental tree. What's the main point I want to make? And if I have more time, I'll elaborate. And if I don't, then I won't. The other factor is who the audience is. And that will affect what I say for each of the components that I mention. If it's an audience member who's of like mind and like background, then it's much easier. I don't have to worry so much about jargon and the, the words that I use. If it's a different audience, it's not so much you want to avoid jargon, but and you do want to avoid jargon that they don't understand, but you want to use jargon that they do understand. So if you happen to be fluent in their vocabulary, then it's much easier for them to understand and parse your message if you're able to then use words that they're familiar with and terms that they're familiar with. So to summarize, there's a, there's a tree with different supporting points, and depending upon the time I have, I'll, I'll use a different level of the tree, and depending upon who I'm talking to in the description of my points, I will be careful with the vocabulary that I use. That's pretty key. I mean, I think, I think there's tactics even for how to establish vocabulary. Like if you're, if you're trying to establish like a, you know, musicians do it a lot, but where they create a chorus and it's something you've never heard. Yeah. Yeah. Like Uh something that you're trying to create with the audience. Um, and, uh, I had to be conscious of that when I was teaching art as well. Cause it's like, I I mean, I know too much about comic books. Uh Like, like I, and so I'll just start being like, you know, panel one, they're like, excuse me, <laughs> like, what is a panel? <laughs> like, you know, and well, if you don't know the audience, right, they might not yeah, even stop yeah. to ask the question. They might just let you talk for 15 minutes and then be like, I got nothing because, like, you lost me on the second word. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, one of the things I always used to do was just start by being like to my students, can you stop me when you don't know something? Because this is no good for me if I'm just talking. <laughs> well, so that's the thing. A lot, a lot of my students live and breathe this stuff. And they don't realize that they have to step back and first connect with the audience and like, okay, where are you at? Do you even understand what I'm saying? And yeah, it's a nuisance because you can't go to the good stuff. But if you don't do that, then you're going to lose them from the very start. And and a lot of the students aren't aware that they live and breathe this, but others don't. So they have to take the time to define things or to explain things. And yeah. 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 Super interesting. Um yeah, I mean, I guess I'm wondering, going back to audience, like, how important... Let me check the time before I... Oh, we're at 11.30. Do you have anything? No, I can stay till 12. What do we have? Uh, we've got a little bit of time. Okay. Um, just a couple more questions. Yeah. And then we may follow up later. Um, but uh, I was thinking uh, about how much... I was thinking about how difficult it is sometimes to know your audience. Sometimes, like the audience is described like it's a conference for these kinds of people. Um, and then other times there's, you're being thrust into a classroom and you don't know who's or or a room and you don't know who's in the audience, but you're being asked to talk about a particular subject, which you would assume people are interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, how much ahead of time before a talk, I guess it, I guess it, it's going to vary by what you're trying to talk about, but how much ahead of time, and what are the kind of questions you would want to ask to figure out things about your audience so you could, you know, think about that when designing your talk? Whenever I'm asked to give a talk or a workshop, I always ask how long, 
What's the goal? And who's the audience? Who's the audience? Like, who are they? Where are they from? What age group demographics? How many are they? And I think, as best as I can, every workshop is sort of geared towards the Pacific audience and goals that I have that are <clears throat> that there are and the goals that they have in mind. So it's very custom made. That being said, there are different stages. So right beforehand, the prep work is I figure out who who as much as I can about the audience. I will typically also prepare backup material because you like maybe extra examples or extra stories if I have more time or if they didn't understand something. And then there's <clears throat> right before the talk. So I like to arrive early and meet some of the audience members because they may not exactly fit the description that I was given. So I might arrive early and chat with some people. Where are you from? Why are you here? And so forth. I like to sit through, if possible, previous. I'd like to sit through things with my audience before my time. So what I mean by that is, if it's a course, I'll come to an earlier session to to see what's going on, to meet them, and see how they behave. If it's a conference talk, then I'll come in for the previous talks and I'll listen to the talks, but I'll be looking at the audience and trying to understand them. And I might adjust things before that. And so there's before, there's right before, and then there's like during. And if when I'm giving the talk, folks tend to focus on their own content, but I think a a good presenter finds that. They know the content well, and they should now focus on the audience and whether or not the audience is responding or understanding. And you need to learn to read the audience. If the audience isn't following what you're saying, then you kind of have to decide if you're going to abandon your script and try to recover them or not. And if they're totally lost, same thing. I think a good presenter or an, an effective presenter finds that that they should, in fact, abandon what they had planned to do and try to recover and try to. See if they can get the audience to understand, or even get the attention back. It reminds me of a time when I was asked to do a workshop in Pakistan. I was told that it's a, a whole bunch of students who are interested in communication. I think, in part, they're also excited. There's an MIT person coming, and I think I was told it'd be like fifty to seven people, fifty to seventy. Student participants. It was about an hour or hour and a half workshop, and I thought I would design it to be interactive, which is a lot of what I like to do. And I tried to account for the fact that there'd be fifty to seventy people, so I have them split into groups and so forth. I also checked that they would understand English because that would be an issue, and I got the go-ahead for that. And when I showed up, what I had not realized was that Pakistani students are very different from MIT students, and They're also very shy, and at MIT, when you ask for volunteers, yeah, there's, there's a, a bit of a silence, but people will volunteer, and people don't mind if you volunteer them. It, it's not—it's very different with this group. And when I asked for volunteers, no one volunteered. I waited. I asked a second time, no one volunteered, and I didn't want to put anyone on the spot because all of a sudden I'm thinking, it's a different culture, and I. Don't know if what I'm going to do might be con construed as oh he's being rude or whatnot, and I don't want to embarrass anybody. 
And so on the fly, I'm thinking, oh, what I prepared is not going to work because it requires people being willing to, if not talk in front of the group, to talk with each other. And I decided to change up things on the fly. What I had decided to do first, I ended up doing third, and I moved something else earlier because I thought that activity might warm them up better. I found that I had to repeat instructions several times because even though they do speak English, I think I was taking for granted uh, instructions that my students would understand versus instructions that they would understand because yes, it still is English, but I guess there are terms or or idioms that we that I use in language very liberally, but can mean something else. It's perfect English, but can also mean something else. So I was like, okay, so I would repeat. I would give examples. This is what I want you to do, for example, so that they would see and and hear. And at the end of the day, I thought, oh, this is an awful workshop. And even though I tried my best to to realign things and. I was thankful that I made it interactive because as they were working, I was sitting down, uh, changing things up and writing down ideas for what I should do instead and and do not. And at the end of the day, I mean, I survived and I think it was okay. I got really good feedback from them, but that's because I think they didn't know what I had planned to do, <laughs> and how all of that was quite different from what actually happened. And so I guess the take-home message is is that I'm the only one that really knew. What I had wanted to do and what didn't work, but as long as I could still package it up into a coherent form, then it probably doesn't matter as much from the audience perspective because they didn't know what I was going to do, and it still makes sense to them.、Mm. So I guess that was. But yeah, and I had prepared beforehand too, and、um, sometimes you just there's so much preparation you can do, and you just have to wing it in the moment. Yeah, and I think what you said earlier about the tree and, and understanding which parts are necessary for what you're trying to convey. This came up in our interview yesterday about like we, we were talking about publishing research, but this that students come in and they think all of the pieces are really important, and if they don't get all in,、mm-hmm. like, and it sounded like in that example that you just talked about, like you knew you could think on the fly because you knew which part was important. To get across, and you knew which parts were flexible,、um, and maybe that's a part of preparation. That's that's a step too. Is like、mm-hmm. maybe previous prior to going in, being like, how flexible am I with this? Because、um, I've definitely seen presentations bomb in, my, in the fields that I work in, where where people are just like not responding to the audience. They're just. Like I'm just gonna give the presentation. It's already failing, so I'm just、yeah. gonna keep failing. <laughs> like, it's like deer in the headlights. <laughs> I don't know what to do, so I'm just gonna keep plowing on. Yeah, and that's no good. I mean, I it's something, but it's not necessarily、uh, good for you because if you're not having fun, because you're not having the audience reaction, and the、mm-hmm. audience isn't having fun, why are we continuing <laughs> with the thing? <laughs> but、um, yeah, no, I was also thinking about.、Um, Voice, you talked about vocal coaching, and I,、uh, I, I remember when I was first at the first two year t- teaching ninth grade students. I had three periods a day with ninth grade students for、mm-hmm. an hour apiece, and they have about a five minute attention span.、Mm-hmm. And I'm a long winded guy. Okay, you haven't gathered. No. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> 
But a lot of that, I also had a 55% English language learner population. And so I was smiling when you were talking about like explaining stuff because I had like half of my students mad because I'd give three examples about what I was talking about before I moved on because they're like, we got it on the yeah, first yeah, one. Yeah. I'm like, you got it on the first one. <laughs> Those five kids over there did not get it on the first one. But I also studied um, public speakers. Like, okay. I've just listened to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. speak or um, Randy Pausch did the last lecture, which yeah. I think is an amazing uh, presentation. But I, I just wanted to hear the rhythm uh-huh. and the, the modu- modulation. Uh-huh. So I was like, these are, these are people who are talking for like half an hour. Yeah. And I, I like listening to them. Yeah. Like, how does that work? You know, and um, I wonder uh, how much that plays a role, like understanding you said the motif even earlier, and I've not heard it called that, but uh, how much, where did you learn that, and what was the? Uh, so is, is the question, where did I learn how to voice modulate, or where did Or, I yeah, I mean, how much, what is the role of vocal, pre, okay. like, understanding rhythms and the way people hear things? So this comes back to the written word and the spoken word. With the written word, I can sort of, I have it in front of me and I can read it and I can reread it if I didn't understand something. And with the spoken word, you typically don't have a transcript of what the person is saying. And you are sitting there listening to these words that are being emitted and you don't know what's important to listen to and you don't know what you should pay attention to. So the burden is on the speaker to do things to help you parse the message. If everything comes out in an equal pace, at the same volume, and everything is the same, nothing's going to stick out. But certainly if there are certain important points, you can emphasize that, or you speed up for things that are not so important, and you slow down, or you pause record for something important. So all of these things that have to do with vocal modulation, I think, basically help a listening audience parse your message better. They're tools that a, a speaker can use. Yeah, that was my last question. I mean, okay. I, I when I when I first started uh, thinking about when I first was training to become a teacher, I met with a guy who's a professional storyteller from Rhode Island. Yeah, and, and uh, he talks to. I, I met him when I was in kindergarten. My mom's an art teacher, so he would stay at our house when he was doing artist in residency. Oh, cool! And I just was fascinated because even as I got older, I would still see him perform with younger kids. They were always very simple, like Cape Verdean stories. Uh, about a Nanzi and, and the coyote, but like what I was fascinated with is you could walk into a room, start telling the story, and everybody got dead silent. Yeah, that's so cool. Like, and, and I was just like, how are you? I mean, these are kids that are like, I and mean, middle school kids, uh-huh. kids who are like too cool for anything. And he could, he could, and he actually talked one time about how he would go into the middle school uh, libraries and they paid him to speak, but, uh-huh. um, he wouldn't tell them to all get around him. He'd just go in, sit down on the ground, cross his legs, and close his eyes, and just listen to what was happening in the room and wait for somebody to just come up and be like, hey, what are you doing? Because, I mean, he's a he's an African-American gentleman. He's got, like, long dreadlocks. And, like, <laughs> like, like, he's just not the kind of person you usually see in a, a public school. Kids. He's, like, six foot three. Um, and, yeah, you just don't see him. And he's got, like, jewelry. And, like, he's just very uh, ornate because it's all part of 
the storytelling uh, yeah. is how he looks. His presentation actually helps people engage to with, draw them in, yeah, to draw them in, mm-hmm. and so. Then, and it was like, you know, within a couple seconds, he can just pivot that whole thing and everybody's paying attention. Wow. Everybody wants to hear him. And I'd like to study that and see what makes I know. It. There's, a, there's a poet in San Diego, Chris Van Hoy, at an event recently. There's maybe 100, 200 people in the room and everybody's kind of chatting in between. And he gets up there and he starts reciting a poem while walking through the audience. And within seconds, everybody just... Yeah, <laughs> like what's going on? Oh, wait, what are these names? They're, they're uh, Len Cabral's the storyteller from Rhode Island. Okay. Uh, he and I can totally put you in contact with him. But well, I, I just want to study them and, and figure out what about them creates this presence. He he mentioned the motif when I first started talking to him because I said to him like, um, "How do you command it?" And he he was the one who first introduced it to me as as a comparison to the chorus in music because he said basically. There's information that you're saying that's new to an audience. And when you're talking to kindergarten kids, like their ability to memorize or, or hold information in their working memory is really not that much. So, mm-hmm. you know, all the new information has to build upon the previous information in such a way that it reminds them of what they just learned. But they don't have a long space of time where they can learn new information <coughs> before it gets overwhelming. So he would always have, he'd be like, uh, like a refrain. Like there was a, a thing he would do when he was telling a story, like, um, and the bunny hopped home. Like, and that would be the refrain. It would remind them, oh, they would all say it with him. Okay. Like he would encourage everybody in the room to like do the hand gesture and say it with him. <laughs> okay. and it's actually quite a clever psychological technique because when you combine movement, vocal, and you're hearing everybody else say it, all the, it's, Churches do this all the time. Like uh-huh. everybody kneel and say this prayer at the same time, and then all of a sudden you're like, "I know this part. Like <laughs> this isn't new." But it, it jolts your memory into uh, having a resting spot. Okay. And then he said, "Then you can introduce a little bit of new information, then go back to the refrain and, okay. it, and build it." Okay. It's, it's it's very similar to how song song construction is. Yeah. Okay. Um, but again, he's storytelling. I mean, it's a bit different of an art form than providing. Uh, but I saw Randy Pausch doing it a lot. But, I mean, he wasn't doing a science talk, although he did introduce some information on virtual reality and that kind of stuff, but it was it was anecdotal. A lot of what he said was anecdotal. But I, I, I all of this, MIT, the MIT communication stuff, is very new to me because I'm realizing how little I know about the sciences, the deep sciences. Like, I, I kind of understand on a surface level what the departments do, but like, okay. I'm like, oh, I am one of the smartest places in the world around this, and I did not pass my high school science classes on it. Is that being recorded? <laughs> oh, I'm totally leaving that in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, I mean, it's just interesting because like, I'm realizing that I what I don't know is I don't know what an audience expects when they go to say a a, a talk on engineering. What I don't know is how much new information they're expecting to hear that they don't already know and how they judge that if they're not getting it. Mm-hmm. Like that's something that's baffling to me because I'm like, I'm not an engineer. Now, if I was going to nah, see in comic book, I don't do that. We don't have anything like we don't have an equivalent to it in the arts because okay. when you want to learn something new in the arts, well, a no one's funding anything in the arts. So like, <laughs> you have to go find it yourself. Okay. Like, okay. That's, just, that's just how it is.
This podcast was written and produced by Adam Greenfield. The executive producer of this podcast is Patrick Yurek. The Great Communicators, the Great Communicators podcast, Grad Comics Live, Grad Comics The Game, and the Technically Speaking comic book series are part of a professional development initiative called GradX. GradX is made possible by the Office of Graduate Education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. To find out more, find about, out more about GradX, as well as get access to other episodes of the Great Communicators podcast, go to gradx.mit.edu. For more information, and, For more links, information on and links on the music used in this episode, please see the show notes.